Thank you, Terry. I just want to encourage you that the night is darkest just before the dawn. So uh, last week was kind of the grim part of of this uh, two-part sermon. This morning it'll be just a little bit brighter, not much, but a little. So you, if you had to miss one week, Terry, you picked the right one. Of course, I know that pride is not really a problem for you, so... What's with the front row here? Did I spit that far last week? Did it really? You know, at Foothill on the carpet, we have this stripe that runs out in front of the pulpit. The, uh, when, they, when they remodeled the worship center, they thought it was sort of artistic, and they put it in there. But it actually, it's kind of like SeaWorld. It's the marking for the splash zone. You know, so as long as you stay outside of that, you're, you're fine. looks like all of you are in good shape. Okay. Wow. Well, what I want you to do is to get in the time machine with me and go backwards in time. I want to take you back to July the 9th, 1941. World War II at that time was raging across both Europe and North Africa. Within months, the U.S. would be drawn into World War II when Japan attacked the U.S. naval fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. It was an eventful day, July the 9th, 1941, because on that day, two Oxford University scientists left England to travel to the United States with a very small but valuable package in their possession. Their mission was to work with U.S. scientists on developing an economical means of mass producing the contents of that small package. In 1928, Sir Alexander Fleming observed observed the bacteria-killing properties of a particular mold, and he named that substance penicillin. It's a highly effective antibiotic, but at that particular time, it was very slow and very expensive to produce, and that made it of limited battlefield usefulness. But by November the 26th, 1941, a team of Anglo-American scientists had figured out a way to increase the production of penicillin tenfold. And so penicillin production was quickly geared up to the point where Allied soldiers for the D-Day landing were able to be treated with this wonder drug and many lives were preserved as a count of that. Today the, the wide variety of antibiotics is available and available worldwide to both save and improve the lives of millions and millions of people. And we can be thankful to these scientists who gave themselves to the task. Last week, we spent time looking at a deadly disease, didn't we? A deadly disease called pride. And we noted its symptoms last week. 
And we also notice its effects upon our own lives and most particularly the threat that this deadly disease presents to this fellowship, indeed to every Bible fellowship. So this week I want to turn our attention to the antidote to pride. The antidote to pride is humility. It is humility. I was thinking about pride again this week and thought this perhaps describes it for us. Pride is, is sort of like bad breath. Everybody else knows when you have it, even if you are oblivious to it yourself, right? That's the way pride is. We can all spot it in someone else, yet we have great difficulty in seeing it in ourselves. Beloved, the Bible is very, very clear that we are not humble people by nature. That is not who we are naturally. In fact, just the opposite. We are a very, very proud people. That's who we naturally are. And therefore, we must constantly attack the pride that wells up within our hearts. And the way to attack that pride, the way to to crush that pride, the way to overcome this deadly disease is by a, a pursuit of humility. And it is a pursuit. It is not something that just comes upon us by walking into a room. It's not something that that we will master by listening to a sermon or reading a book. Pride can only be slain by humility, and humility can only be achieved by a serious, dedicated, and consistent effort empowered by the Spirit of God in His grace to pursue humility. This morning, I want to encourage us in that fight by briefly asking and answering three questions about humility so that we might be invigorated in our pursuit of this essential verdict. So we're going to structure this sermon the same way we structured last week's. Just three questions. Three simple questions. We're not going to exhaust this topic this morning. In our short time together, and I will be faithful to your ending time, Actually, Jeremy told me, go long, he said, and then they'll think I quit early. So, But I will try to be faithful to your ending time. But there's just no way we can exhaust this topic this morning. We don't have enough time together. But we can look at this in enough detail, with enough seriousness, to give us plenty to work on, not just in the week before us, but in the weeks and months and years before us. So here we go. Number one. What is humility? What is humility? I'd like to start with a a tentative definition for you. We'll put that up there. Humility is a focus on God that motivates us to intentionally lay aside legitimate expressions of power and authority in order to promote God's glory and serve others. Read it to you again. Humility is a focus on God that motivates us to intentionally lay aside legitimate expressions of power and authority in order to promote God's glory 
and serve others. So from that definition, you can see there are some active words there. It's not a passive thing. The pursuit of humility is a very active pursuit. Let me try to flesh this definition out for you a little bit with some scriptural examples. So humility is displayed, this definition of humility, that is the the focus on God that motivates us to intentionally lay aside our legitimate expressions of power and authority, is displayed, for example, in Abraham. Abraham, the great patriarch, the founder of the nation of Israel and the father of the faithful. In Genesis chapter 13, and I'm going to move through a few of these pretty quickly. So if you're fast with your Bible and want to turn there, that would be great. And if, if not, then just listen along a little bit. But in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 8, we see an expression of humility in the life of the great patriarch Abraham. And the particular expression of humility that I want to lift out here is, is Abraham's approach to his nephew Lot. Now, Abraham is the patriarch. Abraham is the one to whom God appeared in a vision and gave the promise of the land. Lot is his nephew. Abraham is the superior one, as it were. Lot is the inferior one in this relationship. And yet, notice how Abraham approaches his nephew Lot when there comes a time when they can no longer walk together, they can no longer live together because their herds have become so vast that there's not enough grazing land for the two tribal peoples to live together, and they must separate. Verse 8, Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This valley was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot separated eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. And there. Here's the picture. There's not enough grazing land for the two herds to to be side by side. And so Abraham says, in a great display of humility, not, I will choose where I want to go with my herds, and then Lot, you take what's left. He says, Lot, although you are the inferior, you are the nephew, you choose where you want to go, and I will go the other place. And so Lot looks down onto the Jordan Valley with its with its river and its lush green pasture lands, and he says, I'll take the good land. And Abraham says, fine. You take the good land. I'll take what's left. We see this display of humility in Moses. We see it there in Abraham. We see it in Moses. Numbers chapter 12. So you just turn to the the right a little bit to Numbers chapter 12 and there is a really fascinating statement about Moses in Numbers 12 and verse 3. Parenthetical statement. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble. 
more than any man who was on the face of the earth. That's an incredible statement. Incredible statement. Here's what I want to lift out of the life of Moses for you to just ponder momentarily and then take it with you and chew on it this week. Moses had been chosen by God as the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Isn't that right? It was Moses' staff that through whom the miracles were performed. It was Moses who faced down Pharaoh. It was Moses who parted the Red Sea and led his people across. And yet, it is his brother Aaron's sons who become the high priest. The great man Moses, his sons, his children, become nobodies. Nobodies. It is his brother's children who are elevated to a place of prominence among the nation of Israel. That's difficult. That is difficult to do when you are the king, as it were, of the nation. And yet, Moses, with his legitimacy as the, as the ruler of the people, the deliverer of the nation, his children are counted as nothing. It is his brother's children that receive all the favor. That's not possible unless one is very humble, verse 3. More than any man who is on the face of the earth. Take you to another example in the New Testament. Turn over to Luke chapter 13. Or excuse me, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and we're introduced here in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16 to John the Baptist. Jesus says of John the Baptist, among those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. And yet in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, listen to these words from the mouth of John. John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John is the prophet called of God, the greatest of the prophets. And yet, John says, in comparison to the Messiah, whose front-runner I am, whose, whose ambassador and announcer I am, I am not fit to even untie his dirty thong of his sandal, his shoelace. Again, a man who, who intentionally lays aside the legitimate expressions of power and authority in order to promote God's glory and serve others. Let me give you another one. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul turned to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Here's the Apostle Paul. He has been specifically called by God to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. He has been given a commission by God to be the architect of the Gentile church of which we are the inheritors. As an apostle, he speaks directly for God. This man wrote a good bit of the New Testament. 
He is a he is a powerful and preeminent figure in the history of the church. Yet notice how the apostle Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then check this out among whom I am foremost of all Here's the man chosen by Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentile nations. And he says, among sinners, I am the chief of sinners. I am foremost of all. I am number one low. (laughs) Number one, least worthy of redemption. It's an expression of humility. But let me give you... In Philippians chapter 2, the preeminent example of one who has a legitimate claim to power and authority and yet lays it aside for the glory of God and the service of others. And that's Jesus Christ himself. So Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul's writing here to the church at Philippi, and he writes as follows. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the most despicable and lowly ways to die. The king of glory humbles himself to become a man, and not just a man, but the least of men, a a slave of men. And then to die horribly on a Roman cross, something that would only slaves and traitors could die that way. See another illustration of this in John's Gospel, chapter 13. John chapter 13. I won't read this entire text for you, but this is... The night of Jesus' betrayal, he has gathered his disciples together here for one last meal with them, the Passover meal. He's going to transform a portion of that into what we celebrate as the Lord's table, right? Communion. What's interesting, though, is as they entered into this house, normally before you would come to a meal, there would be a house slave who would come and would wash your feet. It's considered common courtesy. You you walk through the dirty, dusty, muddy roads wearing sandals. Your feet would be pretty nasty. And so it was good hygiene and it was just considered good hospitality to wash a slave to wash your feet. And yet when they arrive here, there is no slave to wash their feet. And so Jesus, Jesus, it says, got up from supper, verse 4, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he wrapped it around his waist. And he began to pour water into basin, into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel 
with which he was girded. Of course, Simon Peter protests, Lord, you should never do this. You are our master. And then he says, verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Here is the king of glory humbling himself to wash filthy feet. Because that's what a slave does. Here is the one in whom resides all preeminence, all lawful glory, right? And yet he humbles himself for the glory of God and the service of others. Turn to the left to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28 and following. Jesus says in Matthew 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus characterizes himself as one who is gentle and humble of heart. What is humility? Humility is not utilizing our lawful privilege and authority and position, but humbling ourselves to serve others for the glory of God. That's what humility is. But it's not what humility is in its entirety. Humility is beyond that. Humility is a bankruptcy of spirit that abandons self-righteousness. Let me show you what I mean. Turn back in Matthew's Gospel to chapter 5, what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, and a particular part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And the first Beatitude, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is present possession, the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? The word translated here in the English poor comes from a, a verb, a Greek verb, and it means to, to crouch down or to cower like a beggar. So the picture is, is something like this. Just crouch down and, and cowering in a corner. In antiquity, people were humiliated to ask for handouts. Begging was considered a, a very humiliating activity. And so, rather than walk right up to you and say, Hey, buddy, you got a dime... They would, they would crouch, they would cower in the shadows, in the corners, and they would make themselves very small and just sort of stretch out a little hand. Jesus uses that illustration here, and he says that this is what it means to, to be a possessor of the kingdom of heaven. That is, when it comes to God, we need to act like a beggar. Not that we have anything to, to walk into His presence and say, Hey, God, why don't you save me? But instead to adopt the 
the, the picture, the, the status of, of one who is like this before their God and, and just sticks out their hand and says, would you, would you save me? Would you save me? They're acutely aware of their own position before God and, and thus they have no righteousness and, and so they turn to God to supply their need. What is humility? Humility is being bankrupt of spirit, poor in spirit, abandoning all claims to righteousness and trusting in Christ alone to supply it to us. Humility is a sign of true religion, therefore. The prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, writes the following, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, humility is hated in this world, but it is a requirement for entrance into the next. Matthew chapter 18. The first few verses. Matthew 18 Verses 1 to 4. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is despised in the world in which you and I live and move. It's all about self-promotion, isn't it? It's all about about making people think well of you. But Jesus says that he does a different kind of math. What is valued in his kingdom, what, what grants access into his kingdom, is one who becomes like a child. Now, what do we know about children? Children are, by nature, humble while they're young. They don't have anything to boast in yet. They haven't learned to boast in these things. They are entirely dependent on others to provide for them, and they know it. Jesus says that's the attitude that we as his children, citizens of his kingdom, we must adopt. You know, pride blinds people to their need of salvation. It blinds people to their need of salvation. And it is the humble of heart who recognize their need before God. What is humility? Humility is, according to the Scriptures, a prerequisite for honor. You want to be honored by God? Go low. Go low. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 12. Solomon writes, Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, that is, puffed up. But humility goes before honor. As we go low, God will lift us up. Humility is the goal of our sanctification. It is the goal of our sanctification. What do I mean by that? Go to Romans chapter 8. 
verses 28 and 29. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, he gives us some amazing theology here about God's electing and predestinating love. And he says in verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, we like that verse, don't we? When life is hard, we like that verse. We go there and we find comfort in that verse, and we should. But we should pick up verse 29 along with that. We shouldn't end at verse 28. We should pick up verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that, we, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What is he saying? He's saying that the, the good that God causes all things to work together for is the fact that we become like Jesus. That's the good. That's the good. And that God has chosen you as His children to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, what do we know about Jesus Christ? That He was humble of heart, right? Gentle and humble of heart. That He was one who did not hang on to His privilege and prerogatives. He was one who, who humbled Himself and became a slave of all, that dying a despicable death in order that He might redeem His people. Becoming like Jesus means becoming humble. And see, and, and God is committed, he says here, to making me and to making you like Jesus. So you know what that means? That means that God is committed to humbling your heart. Isn't that good? I mean, that's, the, that's what we want, isn't it? Because, because that provides our, our unhindered fellowship with our Creator. And so God is going to give the very thing that we most want. Now, I've heard many times people say, Oh, I don't want to pray for humility. See, if I pray for humility, then, then God's going to, going to crush me, right? Oh, my friends, that is, that is a bad view of God. That is bad theology. God is not a, some sort of heartless monster who is out to crush you. God is a loving Father who has demonstrated His love to you most preeminently in that He has given His own Son to die on your behalf, right? So if God will not withhold His own Son from you, will He withhold any good thing? Will He withhold any good thing? No. Not a bit. And so to pray that God help me to humble my heart is to pray the kind of prayer that God delights in answering. Delights in answering it. Now, the process may not be completely enjoyable. I, I get that. I understand that. I mean, abandoning any sin is, is not an enjoyable process. Right? There's pleasure in sin for a season. But there is great, there's great glory in becoming like Christ. Hebrews chapter 12. You don't turn there. Just listen to this. Hebrews chapter 12 kind of comes into play on this. Verse 10. He's talking about God's discipline. And he, and he speaks using an analogy of human fathers. And he says, human fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that is the father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Then he makes a good insight. He says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Kind of an understatement, isn't it? 
but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, to pray, God, help me to humble my heart. Bring me to the place where I no longer am depending upon myself, but I am depending upon you. That's the kind of prayer God delights in answering. And we can pray that in faith, knowing that as our Heavenly Father, He will answer that prayer. He will bring us into situations that force us to be humbled. And it may not be pleasant at the moment, but afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So don't be afraid to pray for God to to humble you. Do it. Do it. And see what God will do. Another definition to get at this question of humility. This comes from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It says, I quote, The humble man is he who acknowledges that he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him. It's a man who acknowledges that he has no claim on God, but God has total claim on him, right, as his creator. Or a nice little book here, and I recommend it to you by C.J. Mahaney, called Humility, True Greatness. And he writes, quote, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's just an honest self-assessment in light of the holiness of God and our own sinfulness produces humility. Second question we want to take a look at is what are its benefits? We've said what is it? Well, what are its benefits? Well, the first one comes from what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 and verse 2. You want to memorize the scripture, by the way? This would be a good scripture to memorize. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one, God says, to whom I will look. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, Humility places us in a position to receive the blessings of God. It puts us in a position to receive the very blessings of God. This is the one, he says, to whom I will look. That is, humility draws the sovereign gaze of God. That's pretty amazing. Right? His his eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth. Right? Looking. And he, he sees those who humble their hearts, those who are lowly and contrite of spirit, those who tremble at the word of God. It draws his favorable gaze. I don't know about you, but the idea of having God sort of looking on me with favor, picking me out of a crowd and saying, this is the one I'm going to bless. Very appealing. Very appealing. Jesus says that humility makes us truly great. Mark chapter 10. Now, your pastor, he's preaching through the book of Mark, right? Where is he, by the way? This is a test. Where is he? Say it again louder. I'm old and deaf. Chapter 13. All right, so he's already covered this one. So you're experts. Mark chapter 10, verses 43, 45.
You remember the context here. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is to suffer. And along the way, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be number one. How like us they are. So, Jesus, uh, uh, John and uh, James, they get their mother involved, right? And she kind of makes an appeal on their behalf. The other disciples find out about it. Is they're irate. They're irate because they didn't think of getting their mother involved, okay? That's why they're irate, okay? And so Jesus speaks to them about this issue of who is great and what is greatness. He says, verse 43, But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your, what? Servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And here's the reason. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Okay, why are we to serve one another in the body of Christ? It's because the the founder of the body, right? The chief cornerstone, the head of the body, the Redeemer Christ Himself came as a slave to serve you and I. And if that's what the Master does, how can His disciples do any less? And it is humility that makes us great. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 23, 12, He says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. J. Oswald Sanders, man of a prior, um, prior life, as it were. I mean, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he has a classic book called Spiritual Leadership. And in that book, Spiritual Leadership, and by the way, I commend that book to you. If you've never read that book, I suggest it to you. Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders. In there, there's a section on humility. And he writes the following. He writes about this man, Samuel Bringle. Samuel Bringle. He lived from 1860 to 1936. Samuel Bringle was the commissioner of the Salvation Army. So he had a high position in the Salvation Army. And one day, Samuel Bringle was introduced to a crowd to whom he was to speak as the great Dr. Bringle. That was part of his introduction. We do that to each other all the time. We introduce each other. So-and-so is the great you know, such and such, and they've earned these degrees, and they've accomplished this thing, and so forth. That's our standard introduction, isn't it? Wouldn't it be cool in the church if we said, here's so-and-so, they're a worm saved by grace, right? A servant of all. They account for nothing. Anything they say will have no value unless it's directly from the Word of God. Please come up and talk to us. Right? Wouldn't that be good? I would have to set our focus. So anyway, after being introduced that night as the great Dr. Bringle, he noted in his diary, I have this for you as a quote. I'll read it to you, but I think we have it up on the screen too. He says, quote, If I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without Him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me. Okay? So 
Dr. Bringle understood that he was being used by God. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me and that it is not of me the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it. He sharpened it. He used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. Right? The axe is nothing. We are, as it were, the axe in the master's hand. He may use you to fell mighty trees, but never forget that he wields you. You do not wield him. Humility makes us truly great. What else does it do to benefit us? Well, humility promotes peace and unity in the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What would that manner be like, Paul? With all humility and gentleness. With patience, showing Tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he says here that within the church, and this is a letter, Ephesians is a letter written to the church about how the church was formed and how it is to live. And he says we're to preserve that unity. We all have a part to preserve that unity of Summit Bible Church. And we are to go about pursuing that unity by humility and gentleness and patience. Tolerance of one another. All the attributes that the world turns its back on, right? But here, here we embrace them, knowing that they are the means by which unity is preserved in His church. See, it's unity that advances the gospel. Philippians chapter 1. It's an interesting passage here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now Paul is in prison. And he's saying, hey, I want you to know that me being imprisoned has turned out to, to cause the gospel to flourish in Rome. You know, God brings all things together for what? Good, huh? So Paul's in prison because of the gospel. And he says, because of my imprisonment, the gospel is making progress in Rome. He says, verse 13, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So by me being imprisoned in Rome, my guards get to hear the gospel. And, and my guards are not just any old guards, they're Praetorian guards. That's the, they're like the, the elite troops, they're the special forces kind of guys. And so they're hearing about the gospel and they're spreading the gospel. 
And the other believers in Rome are emboldened by the fact that there, when I'm in prison, I'm still preaching the gospel, so they're preaching the gospel. But check it out here in verse 15. He's talking about people's preaching the gospel in Rome. He says, but some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What in the world is he talking about? He's saying, listen, while I'm in, I'm in prison here, people are preaching the gospel. And some people are preaching it for good and noble reasons. And I rejoice in that. But you know what? Some people are preaching the gospel in order to make my life harder. They're, they're preaching the gospel and hoping that it, that it causes the Roman government to, to come down harder on me. And Paul says, you know what, I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that because, because the fact that the gospel being preached is the most important thing. If it causes me some personal discomfort and pain, so what? It's the, it's the, it's the gospel that's important. Now that kind of an attitude, when someone's out to do you wrong, right? intentionally trying to do you wrong, and you, you can rejoice in what they're doing because you can see beyond it to what God's doing, and the glory he's receiving, that's humility. It's only humility that can give you the spiritual eyes to see beyond what's happening. All kinds of benefits to humility. Third, how do we pursue it? We've talked about what it is. We've talked about how it benefits us. All right, how do we go after it? Simple answer. You ready? By faith, independence upon Christ. How'd you like that? Okay. By faith, independence upon Christ. That's how we pursue humility. That's how we pursue any Christian virtue. All right, Dave, you can't, you're not going to get off the hook that quickly. You've got to give me a little more to go home with, right? Okay, here we go. Here's some practicals. Number one. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. I've noticed, when I write them out here on the back of your bulletin, is a short series of statements that capture the gospel. And in fact, it's even entitled, Preach the gospel to your who? To yourself, not to your neighbor, to yourself. Okay? Now, the church secretary puts that there is because she has nothing else to put on the back of the bulletin each week. She has to fill up the white space. Now, you know that's not true. She puts it there because this is the key. This is the key. As we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of who we really are, what Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing in us now, and what Christ ultimately will do when He returns for us. It gives us the right perspective on life. It is the power to motivate humility. It's in the gospel. Great preacher of the last century, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote in his book called Spiritual Depression this, and I quote him, 
Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That is really good. Okay? Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. Okay? You are listening to your heart, which is telling you you deserve better than this. That life is not fair. That this person has an advantage over you. That you have been done wrong by such and such a person. And on and on it goes. Jones says, no, 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 talk to yourself. What do we say? We say, self? While I was in open rebellion against my Creator, God in His mercy reached out to me and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for my sin. That's how I talk to myself. I say, self, that substitute was his own son who willingly died on a cross in my place, rising again in accordance with the eternal plan of God, whereby God had graciously decided to save me, his own enemy. And on it goes. Self, his love for you did not end with your salvation, but extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life whereby He forces them to do you good. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. That's how we speak to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. How do you pursue humility? It begins by preaching the Gospel to yourself. Secondly, You pursue humility by deliberately going lower than you think you deserve. Deliberately going lower than you think you deserve. 1 Peter 5.5, he says, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, the without getting lost in it, the Greek behind this this English statement, clothe yourself with humility, is a direct reference back to John 13, where Jesus clothed himself with a towel and washed their feet. It's literally put on the apron of a slave. Put on the apron of a slave. Deliberately go lower than you think you deserve. Remember the, the story that Jesus told? He says, when you come to a party, he says, don't take the, the seat of honor at the party. But go to the, you know, the foot of the table, right? And then you may be elevated. When you come into a situation, size it up and then go lower than you think you deserve. Actively pursue humility. Third, yield to the opinions and preferences of others. Yield to the opinions and preferences of other people. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You talk about countercultural, right? Wow. Yield to other people's preferences. You know what a preference is, right? A preference is my 
uh, you know, I like it this way. And someone else says, well, I like it that way. So you say, okay, since you like it that way, let's have it your way. No, 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 wait a minute. If I, if I always let people have it their way, then I'll never get it my way. So what? So what? You'll grow in humility. You think Jesus got it his way? But boy, we hang on. We cling tight to those preferences. It's got to be my way or the highway, right? We have our own version of the golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules, right? Terrible. Yield. Yield, Paul says. Amazing. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Fourth, seek to serve others in an unnoticed way. Pursuit of humility. How do I go about this? So you seek to serve others in an unnoticed way. John the Baptist again, John chapter 3 and verse 30, he says, I, or excuse me, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease, right? Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must become big, I must become small. Serve others in an unnoticed way. You know how you can test your heart in this, by the way? It's simple. It's when you do, you do some sort of ministry and they forget to uh, congratulate you or to call you out or to send you a thank you note or to even thank you verbally. And then you, you kind of check your heart and you go, you know, if you're feeling kind of put out that nobody said thank you for what I did, then you know immediately that what's going on in there. There's pride. Okay? No, I'm not saying don't ever thank anybody. Okay? That's not, I'm not just saying don't thank people. I'm just saying if you don't get thanked, how you react reveals a lot about what's going on inside. I forgot what number I'm on now, but anyway, next one. Five. Thank you. Five. Immediately transfer glory to God for all your successes. Immediately transfer the glory to God for all your successes. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. That was a great sermon, Pastor. Yeah, I know, because I'm pretty good. I study hard. Right? I translate from the Greek. Gone to seminary, you know, on and on and stuff. Of course it was good. I don't do junk. Right? I mean, what kind of response would that be? So we're not that crass. We're not that crass, but we still, we love it, don't we? I, you know, oh, God really convicted me on this, but I, I uh, <clears throat> after I'd finished preaching, I'd be going home with, with my wife in the car, and I'd say, uh, so, um, so how's the sermon? And, um, you know, I was, I, I was wanting her to comment on, on how it spiritually impacted her. No, what I really wanted her to say was, you know, you did a good job this morning. And uh, then I got really convicted about that. So I changed my, my verbiage. And I, <laughs> and I would say to her, so, so did that sermon impact you for the Lord? You know, that sounded more pious. But I was still doing the same thing. I was just fishing, fishing for compliments. It's terrible. That, that wretched heart, you let that rascal out of the cage for one second. 
So, so do me a favor. Even if you even if you think I did a decent job, don't you know? Just say you know God was glorified today. I'd be happy with that. Okay. If I did a crummy job, tell me. Okay. Because that actually leads into my final point. I think it's six. In the pursuit of humility, seek out advice and welcome correction. Seek out advice and welcome correction. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10. Solomon writes, Through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Wisdom lies in those who will welcome counsel. Proverbs 15:12. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Proverbs 25, verse 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. It's valuable. Valuable. Or another writer, Andrew Murray, in his book on humility, he writes, quote, look upon every person who tries and troubles you as a means of grace to humble you. (laughs) That's pretty good. Look upon every person who tries and troubles you, not as your antagonist, as your enemy, as the person to avoid, but as a means of grace whereby God will humble you. Okay? God causes all things to work together for good. And what is good? Being like Jesus Christ. I'll give you two more quick. Here they are. Pray. I know, i got a list. Pray, read, meditate, memorize the Scriptures. Okay? Pray over the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, meditate on the Scriptures, memorize the Scriptures. Let the, let the Word of God wash your hearts. And one last one for you. Come to the communion table. Come to the communion table and remember what Christ has done for you there. It will promote humility in your heart. May God grant us grace this morning to hear His Word and to put it to practice. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time together, Lord. It has gone quickly. And yet, our Father, we have been blessed by our time here together. What a joy it has been to sing together of our redemption in Jesus Christ. What a joy it has been to hear the Word be in the presence of the body. To recognize, our Father, that You are at work, not just in our lives, but in, but in everyone's life here. And that you are, you are actively at work, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, this particular area of our lives, we are all in need of help. May Your Spirit today and this week work in us to humble us. Our Father, we don't pray that You would keep us humble, for that would assume that we are humble, and Lord, we confess we are not. So what we pray is that You would humble us. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.